0: From the Jeff Nyquist studios on California's North Coast and our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City, suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show, a full hour of stimulating, thought-provoking information you need to know, plus a whole lot more. Now with today's program, here's Jeff.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm Jeff Nyquist, columnist for FinancialSense.com, former columnist with World Net Daily. Perhaps I should begin the show by talking a little bit about my views, where I'm coming from. Uh, this show is going to be uh, mostly interviews, and I'm going to interview people, and I'm looking for uh, interesting facts, things that you don't find on other shows, hidden truths. I'm looking at something very often in my columns and in my work, that the government doesn't want to see. It's something that our press doesn't want to admit or deal with, that uh, people don't want to discuss. I'm looking at the threat from Russia and China. Uh, Russian subversion, Russian nuclear missiles, special operations, Chinese economic sabotage, and China's massive military buildup. A high-ranking Russian military defector once told me that Russia and China together could defeat the United States in a future world war, Russian missiles and china 's massive army could overwhelm america 's defenses he told me and I, I I think about this and I think about the way that people in this country so cavalierly discuss Russia and China as if they really understood these countries i don 't think we do understand them um, i I think of a quote i I saw this quote from William James. And it's very interesting and it relates. It said, he said, we tend to disbelieve all facts and theories for which we have no use. And I think there's some truth in that. In our hedonistic shopping mall culture, we tend to dismiss threats like the Russian threat, and the Chinese threat. I think it's the reason we got caught by surprise on 9-11. We dismiss, we deny, and we evade. We have very comfortable existence, and thinking uncomfortable thoughts is not something that we want to do. I'm doing this show because I made a discovery many years ago, and it has to do with the Cold War, the old struggle between East and West. You might remember 50 years ago, Russia's leader Nikita Khrushchev told a group of NATO officials at a party that their grandchildren would live under communism. We will bury you, he said. Well, he didn't say that you will live under communism. He didn't say your children will live under communism. He said your grandchildren will live under communism. I want you to digest that for a moment, because every player in every game tips his hand at one point or another, and and I think that Khrushchev, after having a few drinks at that party, tipped his hand. Russia has a long-range strategy. It was developed when Khrushchev was in charge of the country And I want to go into this a little bit. We were told that Russian communism collapsed in 1991. But Russia is still run today by the KGB. It has a KGB president, a muzzled press in which journalists are regularly liquidated. Russia is still working with the communist bloc countries like China, North Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, and with newly arising communist countries like Venezuela, South Africa, and Congo, The Russians are supplying our enemies with arms. They're helping Iran acquire nuclear technology. They're aggressively attempting to blackmail Americans who are working today in Russia. And now Russia's president is promising a new arms race. He's threatening. He recently accused America of aggression in the Middle East and Central Asia. How can this be happening to us now if Russia really turned over a new leaf in 1991 how can Russia somehow still today turn up as China's ally and our enemy? In 1984, a KGB defector named Anatoly Galitsyn wrote a book titled New Lies for Old. In that book, Galitsyn claimed that Moscow was planning to collapse communism. He, was, he said they were going to dissolve the Warsaw Pact, that was the communist bloc alliance, that they were going to change the communist system. He also warned that the collapse had been planned in advance in the 1950s and prepared during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. In 1984, KGB defector Galitsyn said that Russia was planning to follow a strategy of controlled collapse and disorder for the purpose of putting the West off its guard. By seeming to disarm and quit the Cold War, Russia would encourage America to disarm and quit. The collapse of communism would be apparent, not real. It would cause the collapse of anti-communism. It would weaken the conservatives, the right-wingers, the religious believers in American politics. Galitzin wrote of the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. He wrote this in 1984. He said that the Warsaw Pact would be dissolved, he said this in 1984, but it would be a ruse. He warned it would be a trick, a deception. In 1984, Galitzin made 148 falsifiable predictions, according to researcher Mark Riebling. And by the end of 1993, 139 of these 148 predictions were fulfilled, and more have been fulfilled in subsequent years. There is a growing body of evidence that everybody prefers to ignore. It is buried, tediously, in a mountain of trivia at the bottom of an ocean of misinterpretation. Galitzin's prediction, in the end, is that Russia and China would emerge as one clenched fist and the tables would be turned on America. He warned that Europe could be transformed into a neutral bloc beholden to Russia, He warned that the third world and the Islamic world would go over to Russia and China. He was concerned that Latin America would join a new communist bloc. Now look at the world around us today. And these things are happening. Right before our eyes, these developments are taking place. They are unfolding now. Here's what ABC News reported just the other day on May 5th. There's the headline, Communist symbol returns to Russia's army flag. Russia's parliament has voted to restore the communist era hammer and sickle to the official flag of the Russian army. Hmm. With me today is the guest Igor Shafid, he's author of the book Inside the Red Zone, and he's from the Soviet army.
0: You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist radio show with your host, Jeff Nyquist.
2: Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life.
0: We're Live Radio 1020 WIBG,
2: where more people every day hear the truth from Hurley in the Morning to the Wondrous Story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulo, live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning Afternoons.
0: South Jersey's Cutting Edge Christian News Talk and your station for Wibbage Oldies every weekend.
2: WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com plugging you into
0: And now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show, Jeff Nyquist.
1: With me is Igor Shafid, author of Inside the Red Zone. He's a former Soviet Army doctor who served with the uh, Soviet Strategic Rocket Forces. Uh, Welcome to the show, Igor.
3: Yeah, it is a pleasure talking with you, Jeff. Thank you.
1: Yes, well, you know, I was fascinated by your book, and uh, you were trained in a country that was seriously preparing for World War III, and even Russia's medical infrastructure is basically not oriented like the U.S. to consumers. It has a military orientation. Perhaps you could explain how that works.
3: Yes. uh, Well, it it is a completely different uh, perspective and completely different uh, medical um, structure. And I came from the military medical structure. And, of course, uh, Soviet military... uh, definitely spend uh, many money lot, lots of money and uh, many years build up uh, very serious uh, systems like isolation or percussion systems hospitals with complete isolation wards and for mass casualty situations due to a global warfare with United States all these facilities still exist today and uh, as I said the training in uh, Russia in Soviet uh, army uh, medical military training was uh, directed specifically towards uh, serious large mass casualty events and uh, with a large uh, amount of people and a very large amount of uh, uh, animals and plants destroyed by biological or chemical releases Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, it was very specifically oriented to the global
4: warfare.
1: Now, that that is something that, to Americans, is, is very hard to grasp. We, in this country, we live a normal life, what we call a normal life. We don't uh, have bomb shelters. We don't think about uh, huge catastrophes if such things happen. We just uh, They're just too terrible to think about. We don't really prepare for them because they're not part of our experience. We didn't suffer what the Soviet Union suffered in World War II, for example, with tens of millions of dead uh, being invaded by the Nazis. Uh, I'm fascinated by the fact of these preparations because when you seriously prepare for something, it means you think it's going to happen.
3: Yes. And, you know, I think it's a part of a mindset of a nation, actually. And, of course, under communistic rule, uh, we had that um, constant training, Uh, that uh, practically mind control brainwash whatever you want to use word but practically the whole nation of the Soviet Union was dedicated and daily in daily preparation to the uh, last the final the biggest one, uh, war with uh, nations and, of course, number one enemy is United States. People was going towards uh, that idea that someday they will go on to die. And even if they, uh, you know, they still want to win, no matter what. And even uh, the number of people who supposed to die, let's say, in Soviet Union, still be a less due to preparation than, let's say, in the United States, so practically in the end, Soviet Union still uh, can win. That was a kind of a general idea.
1: Which is a completely alien idea to us. You, you write in your book that the Soviet Union used silent terrorism by convincing the entire Russian population that the enemy, the United States, intended to attack them. So... So, basically, what you say in your book is that you you were the brainwashing that you were talking about was a, persuading the Russian people that America is so evil that we over here were thinking and scheming on how to use nuclear and biological weapons on russia
3: Yes, and this is pro- probably that the uh, term "Iron Curtain" come to place because Iron Curtain is truly uh, almost complete control. Of information or exchange information between uh, Europe and Soviet Union between United States and Soviet Union and it's a physical control that's why KGB was such a, a tremendous power over people and they had almost I mean practical complete control of every entrances and exits of information and that's why it's so easy to give a lot of lies for a long time, and people start believing lies, and that's all what they know.
1: It must have been very difficult. Now you, you've moved from from Russia to the United States. It must have been a very difficult psychological adjustment because it, it would almost be like a diver coming from very deep underwater, coming up. You know, you don't want to come up too fast because the the pressure here is so different than it is over there.
3: Yes, it was a kind of a shock for me in the first days when I came. And uh, it was, uh, you know, I I received a lot of support from my wife and uh, I I didn't speak English fluently and it was difficult for me to adjust. The probably biggest shock I experienced when I went to the big uh, supermarkets and I saw um, multiple different types of breads in the shelves and it was very confusing and almost almost unbelievable for me because I didn't understand why America needs so many types of bread. <laughs> Just a simple thing like that, you know? <laughs> and it's put me in a kind of a depression mode for some time because I was realized how some cultures and nations can have so many good things and after all when somebody telling you they're bad constantly and after it's completely Unrealistically different story. It's kind of a uh, difficult, you know, uh, mentally. It's very difficult.
1: It's it's interesting, uh, you know, when you you look back on history. Uh, I noted that, uh, and I've written this before. That Hitler, before World War II, blamed the Jews for for conspiring to to cause a world war, and then he he said he was going to exterminate them if if a world war happened, and then he followed through. Of course, we know that Hitler started the war. Uh, by invading Poland. But do you think now that you've lived in this country and you've had a chance to reflect on the things that you were taught in the Soviet Union, is it the case that the people running the Soviet Union had a similar thought, that they were blaming America for conspiring to to exterminate the Russian people, but that in their own they were plotting the extermination of the Americans?
3: Yes, I believe it was a layer of conspiracy, if you want to use the word conspiracy, a layer of knowledge in Soviet Union. And a very high level of officials lived a different, completely enclosed life. And that's rulers of the Soviet Union who actually understood... That uh, economically, Soviet Union cannot reach United States because the system of communism simply is not working right financially, mm-hmm. and they they was uh, realised that there was not in a delusion on that fact, mm-hmm. and I think they kept everybody else in uh, in a level of uh, hatred and um, confusion. Uh, Or at least uh, fear. Fear is a good factor and good stimulus, you know, for nations to become evil. And that's what they used, the factor of uh, fear and uh, hatred. And I think uh, layers of, high layers of officials, they, they had pretty clear picture that Soviet Union facing some financial problems. And obviously, military machine was so huge that I believe uh, they spent most money and every effort possible to build a gigantic military complex for only one reason. I, I do believe in the end they had a goal to attack United States finally.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does appear that unless they actually believed the paranoid uh, fear stories that they propagated, unless they believed those stories, They were actually consciously preparing to attack the United States. You know, I I was on a radio show and and, uh, a famous American talk show host, and I said that, you know, Russia has been preparing a nuclear world war against the United States. And he said, well, the United States is doing the same thing. And I said, oh, no, we haven't. We only prepare for uh, deterrence. Once the nuclear bombs are launched, we have no idea what to do. Uh, we have no defenses against nuclear weapons. We don't teach our people uh, how to protect themselves against radiation and biological weapons. But in, in the Soviet Union, they did have extensive protective measures, didn't they?
3: Yes, they did. And actually, this is, in fact, that's actually proven that, yes, true, the United States never had a goal of offense towards the Soviet Union. And because I came from a different side of the military, I came from a defense side of the military. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you that most military machinery in Russia was dedicated only for one purpose, offensive purpose. Biological, chemical, or nuclear, it only was one purpose, offensive. And, of course, protect the military and uh, soldiers in the military was a very short goal. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a temporary protection. In other words, you need to win no matter what, no matter how people can die in the process of winning.
4: Yeah.
3: And after, lucky leftovers can, you know, be alive and enjoy whatever, you know, their life. But right. in the process, that's why defense machinery was kind of a almost a, a Prevention was not existed, it was more like a, in a process when mm-hmm. it's already happening. That's when we start uh, protecting you, nation of Soviet Union, against uh, whatever happened in global warfare.
4: Yeah.
3: And of course, uh, it's, I, I always recognize that uh, un- uncompletion of defense in Soviet Union due to medical experience mostly, mm-hmm. but of course, uh, they built such a In comparison, such a tremendous size of, uh, you know, bunkers and underground facilities and all that stuff was built up to protect civilian population, at least what's left after the war, the -hmm. global war with the United States. And that was a part of, well, like you said, paranoid or whatever, but... People truly believe that, you know, someday they need to spend some time underground for long, maybe for a few weeks or maybe for a few months.
1: Yeah, well, they, and certainly if you, if you do want to win a nuclear war, you have to hit first, you have to hit hard, you have to destroy most of the enemy missiles so that you don't get hit too hard back. And then you need to have missiles left over so you can aim them at the countries that are not damaged and force them to surrender and to feed you and to build you back up again. Uh, it's correct. You uh, served in the Strategic Rocket Forces at one time, uh, isn't that correct?
3: Yes, it's correct.
1: What what kind of organization is uh, that? Maybe you can explain to me how the the people feel, how professional they are, how uh, how elite an organization is this?
3: Well, uh, I experienced uh, from the first hand. I, I spent some time in the Kapustin Yar ER Strategic uh, Nuclear. Uh, test site. Mm-hmm.
4: It's,
3: it's in uh, it's a Middle Russia, in the Middle Russia area, not far from uh, Volgograd. And um, what I can say about just people who, that officers, uh, just, as uh, you know, lieutenants and captains, officers who actually serve in a service uh, with a strategic ICBMs, missiles, so they're involved in different tests, you know, nuclear sometimes. This is just uh, one thing I can tell you that um, it's a lot of alcoholism and a lot of depression right there going on. Mm. If I speak for the high-ranking officers like the generals and who control armies and divisions, they well, they also have a drinking problems, but their life is so away from the first layer of people mm-hmm. in strategic rocket force and I think they're real seriously suffering from a lot of depression and the number one suicides in the Russian army even today coming from strategic rocket force. Really? And officers, yes. The officers who who supposed to, you know be underground and control that sea loss, you know, with ICBM's nuclear, they're killing themselves.
1: So part of the depression is from being underground a lot, or... I
3: don't think that's about underground. I think it's in general very uh, depressive life, because I never personally like it. It's, you know, people live in a desert. It's nothing there. There's no moles. It's it's, a very depressive climate. It's almost like a Nevada test site where mm-hmm. I'm working right now. But in a way, it's it's worse because they they have no uh, no family support. Sometimes they go for weeks inside that silos uh, and they're spending a long time in there. And it's probably just simply I don't know. Depression is very intense, and alcoholism is a very very high problem in uh, in a level of officers hmm. for sure.
1: Um, uh, we, we we were talking about how. Uh, they they kind of taught everybody that the U.S. is the enemy, that the U.S. is conspiring against Russia. Uh, President Putin of of the Russian Federation came on Russian television, gave a speech, and in the middle of the speech, he he talked about, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union and that uh, R- Russia was the remnant of the Soviet Union. And that uh, did you hear Putin's speech by chance?
3: I didn't hear his speech, but I heard different statements he gave specifically due to celebration of KGB, and uh, KGB had uh, anniversary celebrations. And um, I heard his speeches at that time, and his own words was that the uh, fall down of Soviet Union was the biggest tragedy Russian people ever experienced in mm. their lives. That's his statement.
1: And, of course, that it, when you say that, there's a whole... Uh, logical train of thoughts that follow from that—that you—that you are basically saying that you believe.
3: Yes, and I believe Vladimir Putin today and his cabinet has very intense interest in put back at least some parts of uh, Soviet Union. Maybe not in a form of exactly Soviet Union, but some kind of a militarized part together, and it might be. Uh, practically undercover work right now. It looks like we have independent states like Belarusia or Ukraine or other states. But I still think something behind the curtains is going on and that militarized machine was actually never destroyed because every republic had a specific station's military and it looks like it was removed away. But honestly, it was not removed away. It was left behind they can uh, recover in a reasonably fast time.
1: Yeah, it's, it is interesting. I, I had this discussion with a, a defector, Colonel Stanislav Lunev of the GRU, and he went through this, how quickly the former Soviet military machine could be put back together, and, and that if they had the right psychological event to rally the Russian people, to rally the, uh, the morale of the military, that they could put it back together again.
3: It's possible, not completely like it was before, right. uh, and I believe Baltic uh, republics—they lost forever. Yeah. But some nations still willingly be coming back to this, to the, to the same principles, because communism still there all over the place,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and high-ranking levels everywhere. And of course, you know, I mentioned some stuff in in my book *Inside the Red Zone* uh, about. Uh, mentality of terrorists, but I think people need to more concentrate not on just mentality of Muslim terrorists.
4: Mm -hmm. They need to
3: look at the mentality of terroristic states and nations, which are ruled by, uh, you know, high-ranking former KGB officials, and you know what? You'll see that not much things changed in the world. Actually, it's all kind of the same.
1: Yeah, the Soviet Union was a major supporter of terrorism, and and we find that many Russian criminals uh, and uh, former k g b officials are involved to this day with uh, with major Islamic terrorists and other terrorists in other parts of the world
3: yes, and uh, again in the book uh, I mentioned in some chapters about terrorist mind and uh, you know I experienced some uh, when I was working in a hospital in St Petersburg it was a former k g b hospital I was shocked how many even still active KGB agents was intact and worked together closely with uh, practically uh, criminal groups to sell an armory and uh, different stuff on the black market and making money that way. And they did actually cover that groups, including Chechen criminal groups. And uh, it's very, very serious and it's very uh, disturbing, but the organization was so powerful. And now Putin built back all that powerful again that uh, federal security bureau, which mm-hmm. is a new name for KGB, and a lot of people in that bureau involved with this uh, unfortunate connections with the criminal groups, including Chechens, in
4: fact.
1: Yeah, and it uh, it means that you cannot trust what you read in the news about what happens because you don't know that the that the KGB isn't on both sides of of every conflict in Asia.
3: Yes. And you know what, speaking of uh, Vladimir Putin, actually, everybody kind of, a lot of people saying he's an honest guy and you know, and everything else. Well, last week I, I looked at some pictures about him. And in Russia, the media, Russian media like to catch up some things about the clothes, you know, and watches, expensive or not expensive. Mm-hmm. And they said, listen, this guy has a watch, a $60,000 watch, one of the most expensive watches. And Speaking of his salary, his salary, $60,000 a year salary. So my question, how this guy buying a watch for $60,000 watch if his salary for one year is 60000
1: mm-hmm. So
3: obviously he's getting some kind of extra incomes.
1: Yes, uh, obviously he must yeah. be. Uh, I, I once asked Colonel Lunev, uh, you know, are there any good guys in the hierarchy of the Soviet military or the, the Soviet political system? or the now the Russian political system and he looked at me like I was crazy and he said to me he says these are not human beings these are crazy persons uh, could you explain what he meant is it that un- does that make sense to you
3: well uh you know I knew many of, uh you know KGB um, active KGB and uh, people who retired from KGB colonels and uh, so I don't know if they are all crazy But they all dedicated, and that's a problem. And they dedicated. It's almost like saying, you know, if you wasn't KGB, yours will be KGB. Mm
4: -hmm. It's
3: a very close organization, and uh, people who uh, was taken in, mostly when they was young, they stay in there forever. And as I said, I I, know I knew some people who spent 30, 40 years in KGB and they get in the very high ranks, and you know what? Even after retirement, they're still there, they're still active, they're still consulting, and they're still involved. And it's, it's just something never gone away from them. And I, honestly, yes, I do believe that uh, it is a very dark and evil organization, for sure.
1: Hmm. Um, you're a medical doctor, and you have worked with uh, radiation victims. You've worked with people who've been exposed to Uh, biological organisms. In fact, they kind of used you as a guinea pig. Uh, uh, Soviet medical doctors were were given different diseases or exposed to them. Uh, Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that.
3: Well, uh, mostly uh, physicians in Russia, specifically military physicians, they are trained with more realistic world. Yes, they're exposed to the different real pathogens. And exposure usually common it's almost they make this a natural way. It's not like, like I remember, we never was even thinking about this. It was kind of a part of the training. We never was even concerned that might be it's a hazardous for our health or for anybody else around us. And we was working in uh, like a center of tuberculosis, and we had no protection masks on our faces, and they never used gloves. And they never gave us any glasses. They never gave us masks on our faces. And we was working with actually contagious people with multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. So, uh, and I do believe partially they did a lot of different things on us during uh, military medical, uh, you know, training before mm-hmm. we, we become, uh, you know, physicians. Uh, and this was a kind of an innocent way. In other words, they did a lot of vaccination on us, and I think they was testing vaccines, and they'll see what kind of uh, how actively you know, that vaccines protecting our bodies against that kind of a contacts with them.
1: And, of course, uh, being exposed at very low levels to some uh, pathogens, some bacteria and, and viruses actually can help your immune system fight them off.
3: Oh, yes, of course. That's built immune system very powerfully. In fact, I remember days when I was, I was trying to become uh, sick, ill, for just to get you know free time, few weeks of vacation or something, mm-hmm. just laying on the bed, I couldn't. I just couldn't get get sick even.
1: Because your immune system had been so strengthened by what you'd been exposed to. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, people who work in hospitals often develop these kind of uh, immunities because they're exposed continuously to things. Now let's let's talk about uh, uh, biological because that's kind of intriguing and that's the poor man's atom bomb. Um, and you you mentioned uh, in Russian hospitals uh, having uh, isolation wards, large isolation wards, and here in the u s we have really no such thing that i 've seen in any of the hospitals i 've been in um, What would happen if you had let 's say a major breakout outbreak of smallpox uh, in a city uh, what what do you do if, if you 're living in that city? what is the the safety uh, action that you would recommend?
3: Personally, I will separate myself immediately from people around me.
1: Mm-hmm. In
3: other words, I try to isolate myself the best way I can, and I practically be staying at home. In other words, I'm not going to work next day, and I'm not going to eat, to to a store next day.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: All what I'll be doing, I'll be probably sitting at home. I tried maybe taped everything around the house as mm-hmm. much as I can mm-hmm. because we don't have any bunkers to protect us. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's all that I can do. But my biggest mistake will be, and I'm speaking right now practically against CDC teachings,
4: mm-hmm.
3: what I'm saying, I will stay at my house because I will not go and get that vaccination.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Because the plan of CDC today, that everybody in the city needs to go to some places like high schools and start staying in one line there and getting that vaccinations. Well, one problem about that if it was not just a single, you know, some single innocent event that some person brings smallpox from another country in mm-hmm. the United States, mm-hmm. and if it was a biological release, we need to ex- expect a mass number of highly contagious victims. So definitely I'm not planning to stay in line with maybe some already contagious person to get my vaccination because that would be the best way for me to get actually inoculated. Mm -hmm. And another problem, if I go to the hospital, for example, and many people be running towards the hospitals Mm -hmm. just with, uh, you know, panicking condition because they think that hospitals can help them in any way. Mm -hmm. They mistaken big time because hospitals, most hospitals, if a smallpox outbreak occur and if it's a man-made outbreak, most hospitals will be contaminated inside and outside, probably in a few hours. They don't know how to work with the highly contagious victims. They don't know how to remove contamination from their skin. They don't even know how to protect themselves. And that's be a very dangerous place to be, and I definitely don't want to go there at all.
1: And, of course, we don't know whether the vaccines we have for smallpox would work against a, a weaponized version of the, of the virus.
3: From my personal experience, vaccinations in the Soviet Union and even today in Russia more powerful but maybe more dangerous, but because they're using life pathogens
4: mm-hmm.
3: they inoculating people with the life pathogens, they may be uh, this, you know strong strains, person can develop you know not a complete full blown disease, but mm-hmm. at least can have a, some kind of a body reaction to the vaccine high temperature you know maybe be ill for three four days but that's okay because the body need create reaction Mm -hmm. in united states vaccines all chemically changed and they're actually not alive and because they're not alive they cannot produce strong immune response and if they cannot produce strong immune response our bodies just does not have enough memory to fight a real strain of you know, weaponized uh,
2: agents.
1: So the vaccines that we're making in the U.S. aren't strong enough to combat the the virulent pathogens that would be used in a war?
3: I believe at least uh, some, like for example, I don't believe smallpox vaccine can prevent uh, population from uh, developing smallpox. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it's a weaponized form, probably not. And again, what I'm saying now, it's very unpopular, you know, and yes. that's not what
1: <laughs> tail
3: telling people right, and uh, right, government. It's,
1: it's very bad news. And, of course, the advice that you would give as a doctor to people who have compromised immune systems, can people with compromised immune systems uh, receive these vaccines?
3: With compromised immune systems, people definitely, they have some chronic illnesses, they, they might develop reactions as possible. Mm-hmm. and again uh, you know vaccination mass vaccination it always exists possibility to develop allergic reaction on vaccine oh. but the numbers is not so high I mean it's like maybe one in I don't know 10,000 people
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, can seriously develop reactions but uh, again uh, that's not about reactions and it's not about it's, it's a strain of a vaccination that's what it's all about in other words my concern that uh, people can get vaccinations and they'll be feeling that they're completely protected, but that's completely wrong. <laughs>
4: mm, yes. and they
3: start doing their things. They start walking all over the place. They start living their life. And finally, they start developing disease because uh, that vac- vaccine was not powerful enough.
1: And, and often in a biological attack, they strike with more than one disease at a time.
3: Well, yes, in that case, it would be a very professionally made. And if we're dealing with some cases like multiple, like a cocktail type of a release, Mm -hmm. that's, I don't believe terrorists can come close to that yet. And that's probably some kind of a nation dealing, you know, already Mm -hmm. in a war with another one because Mm. it's not something common to release cocktails, so, you know, in the form of a cocktail, so...
4: Yeah. Mixtures.
3: It's not, in other words, it's definitely be a, some kind of a, a country.
1: And that in that case, it would be state-sponsored terrorism. If, yes. if we saw that. Um, and now, now going over to the nuclear side, um, we've heard a lot about these small nuclear weapons that that can be detonated by terrorists, and and you've studied the effects of these bombs. And you write in your book that really, with these smaller bombs, th- the greatest danger is the radiation generated by a ground-level explosion, um, perhaps you could tell us something about your experience with radiation and what people need to do to protect themselves, and if they are exposed, what they, what the treatment is.
3: Well, uh, my experience, we had some uh, military uh, training exercises with uh, some radiological powerful sources.
4: hmm So Mm -hmm.
3: sometimes the sources was powerful enough to create actually, you know, even maybe maybe local injuries, but nobody should touch that kind of sources. And we Mm -hmm. knew that, and we always train very, very right and carefully in that subject.
1: So they actually made it so when you were training, you had a chance of being exposed to radiation during the training. Yes,
3: maybe not. You know, if you start doing some big mistakes, you can get those. You know, Mm -hmm. if you start walking towards the source completely, you know, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: with no reason, yes, you can get those. But mostly, it's mostly, they create Mm -hmm. a strong uh, field of radiation. So, soldiers can actually actively work inside at large fields and uh, work with the instruments you know properly work and mm-hmm. see how this is all can be accomplished the mission
1: so they basically they seriously trained and they really uh, got experience working with radiation and and how to detect it and what to know what the levels were and so on
3: yes. Not, of course, to the deadly levels, but mm-hmm. it was a sources of radiation sometimes with the seven eight hundred Curie activity sources,
4: mm-hmm. and that's
3: a very powerful source. They create real strong fields of radiation
4: mm-hmm.
3: and of course, if somebody want to just come and pick up that source, definitely a person can develop acute radiation illness mm-hmm. and probably burns in the hands and everything else. Mm-hmm. so that kind of a radiation injury cause
4: mm-hmm.
3: but uh, there was Quite careful, you know, with not doing this kind of things. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, I mentioned about this, this so-called pop-up sources uh, in my book, Inside the Red Zone. In fact, my book actually available in any uh, stores in Barnes and Nobles, Amazon.com, and uh, the listeners can find book in any Christian store as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, speaking of uh, uh, radiation injuries, my experience mostly was with uh, working with. Uh, Military responders who came from Chernobyl Mm -hmm. in
4: 1986
3: and in 1985, uh, we had some um, submarine incident in uh, Kashmir Bay in Vladivostok. So uh, the overdosed sailors were sent towards Leningrad Military Medical Academy, Mm -hmm. where I was at that time studying medicine and that's the people who got very very high doses of radiation practically deadly doses of radiation Mm -hmm. and all of them they all died in about three four weeks
1: oh that sounds very painful
3: yes it was painful and difficult to see them and i know a lot of research was done on that people Because military, they never used, you know, that they always used moments of inference to to do a lot of research, specifically pharmaceutical drugs, you know, Mm -hmm. new, they tested and all that kind of stuff on uh, still-alive patients.
1: And so these men had more than uh, 500 rads of radiation exposure in a short period? There
3: was people with uh, some few thousand, maybe even more, uh, rams they received, and uh, some of them develop very powerful gastrointestinal syndrome and hemorrhagic syndrome, hmm. and many lost the and the colon. There was actually, uh, it's not an easy way to die, in other words.
1: No, it doesn't sound right. And so if we had a terrorist attack on an American city, what would be the advice for Americans? We don't have radiac meters. We don't we can't otherwise detect radiation we don't know if it's coming our way uh... what what would you suggest
3: i think again another biggest uh, f- the biggest thing for people if there was outside at the moment of the blast and a blast occurs somewhere let's say i don't know half a mile away mm-hmm. it was a uh, maybe a radiological dispersal device was mm-hmm. blow up nobody of course know about this nobody tell anybody anything mm-hmm. because it takes some time to analyze And I know law enforcement, they now have some, you know, like uh, portable uh, detectors and monitors, so they actually quickly can recognize radiation in the air. But the biggest problem for population will be radioactive fallout. And fallout usually can develop so fast and start actually falling down on the roofs of the buildings and the structures and the floor and uh, roads in sometimes in just uh, minutes.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: this is what people need to be afraid of. So people who actually get reached by the clouds, they cannot go home and just contaminate everything inside. They should undress themselves outside before they entering the house. Mm-hmm. And after they need to go and uh, well, I personally recommend take a shower as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, uh, details on how to remove radioactive material from the hair and from the body, I gave in my appendices in the mm-hmm. book Inside the Red Zone. They can look at this and, and read. But because we don't have a detection instruments, and not civilians be actually a survey by anybody, my recommendation, if even if I don't know with what I'm dealing with, I still need to remove potential radioactive material from my body and from my hair. Mm-hmm. And that's as fast as I can do that the better it, the better it gets because radioactive material have ability to become fixed to the skin
1: oh and it that's does. very
3: important to know
1: I didn't know that it it so it it can adhere to the skin
3: yes, it's through absorption through the pores and through the chemical reactions, actually radioactive material can become fixed to the skin in about 40, 45 minutes sometimes less sometimes longer. But that's about time, maybe 30, 30, 45 minutes. That's about time when people have, and they need to remove that fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Because after that, when it's become fixed to the skin, shampooing and washing and brushing will be a waste of time.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: unfortunately, in that case, only uh, specializing facilities like uh, uh, health physicists, for example, they can use special strong chemical solutions
4: mm-hmm. to
3: remove that material from the skin. And honestly, they only can work with the hands and feet today. So if it's, if it's in my neck or it's in my chest, they cannot use like a calcium permanganate, highly concentrated on my chest, because it kind of, practically burned my epidermis off. Hmm. And that's almost, that's would be impossible, especially in the face.
1: So this is, the, that's a very serious effect that could happen if you don't get the, material off your skin quickly
3: yes and i also recommend everybody have a just uh, you can use simple baby wipes as long mm-hmm. as it's non-alcohol baby wipes
4: mm-hmm. and
3: they need to wipe their face fast with that baby wipes and it can remove a lot of material from the face mm. they also can gargle water you know if they get something inside the mouth mm-hmm. they need to clean the ears with the wet same baby wipes is fine If they get something inside the ice, they need to irrigate ice with water immediately because that's be an open door for internal contamination.
4: Mm.
3: Psychologically, I recommend people, if something happens and I get under that cloud somehow or I feel like I was too close to that cloud, Mm -hmm. I need to go at home, I take my clothes off outside the house, I put this in a double bag, and uh, I leave the clothes outside. I go inside the house and I start taking a shower. And in that moment, I need to seriously close my eyes. I don't need to. Uh, I need to exhale and mm-hmm. try not to breathe too much and not to talk. And I need to wash my hair. And uh, you know, and all these details again, I'm given in the book inside the red zone and appendixes. Honestly, you need to have somebody who can assist you to take a shower because mm-hmm. you need to be uh, sitting in a chair when you wash washing your hair. Otherwise, all that material can cover your body
4: mm-hmm. completely
3: from the hair,
4: hmm.
3: and that's be some some case even worse. So it's a details right now, but again, that's that's why uh, I feel like I want to scream because civilian. Uh, preparedness does not exist in this nation. No, civil it, it, defense does not exist, and this is the things people must to know.
1: You know, I I went when I got interested in civil defense 15 years ago. I went to FEMA and I got everything they had on radiation and and so on. And then I got books, and there are things in your book that I did not find in any of the books. Uh, for example, the books I'll talk about washing radiation off of you. Uh well, but, that's about all. Uh, but 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 there's nothing about it adheres to your skin after forty five minutes.
3: Well see nobody's saying that. Yeah. I mean health physicists know that. They know that in the United States. But the question is why nobody try and connect that knowledge with the people, you know, yeah. to the people.
1: It is because we are a capitalist system and we're based on, you know, what people want to buy. That's right. And people don't want this even though it should be given to them and they should have to you know, learn it.
4: That's that's sad.
1: And and that was my going to be my last question. What you think of the preparedness of the United States? You've come from a country that was very serious about preparedness, uh, and now you're here in America, and we've had the threat. We're told that terrorists are are, are planning uh, future strikes. Uh, we know that biological or nuclear weapons or so radiological dispersion devices could be used uh what do you think of 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 where we're at today in our preparations
3: I say to I say in general, and i you know I'm teaching responders uh, military and civilian in the United States for the last five years already mm-hmm. and I always telling them one thing America, the way America goes with preparedness and civilian defense it's take about twenty five uh thirty years for America to come close to some kind of a preparation. The way they go things goes today, they go in the wrong direction. And actually civil defense today still absolutely not exist at all. So I personally see that yes, responders in this nation, you know, they trying to train, you know, themselves and government giving them a lot of money, a lot of money displaced completely. They just wasted billions of dollars for completely waste uh, equipment, wrong, they're buying wrong equipment, they don't know what they're doing, complete chaos.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And the problem, as I said, yes, responders getting trained, uh, you know, good, not good, so-so, practically so-so. I say if I take a scale like A, B, C, D, we're practically not staying close to the, uh, let's say, close to the F position, you know, very, very, very bad. Mm-hmm. And this is a reality. And again, you know, politicians don't
1: like that. <laughs> and I think it's because the American people don't want to hear that, because it, we're, we've become a society about convenience. And uh, if we wanted to prepare, we would have to accept some basic inconveniences in our daily lives.
3: And uh, probably it's never happened, because uh, American uh, way of life is uh, different than different than, uh, you know, they feel like it can uh, impact their daily life, which probably, yes, but not that bad. They just don't want to see uh, gray colors. They like to see, you know, rainbow.
1: Right. It is depressing. As you said, you, you, you mentioned the alcoholism and the strategic rocket forces. It would be very depressing for Americans to... To kind of have a grayer life, and uh, you know that would definitely take out some of the enjoyment that people presently feel in the, in their lives.
3: It, it it can affect American dream, you know. That's uh, famous mm-hmm. American dream.
1: Of course, it's interesting. You came to the United States. You you met an American. You became a Christian. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. That's an interesting story
3: yes i become a christian in 1992 and when i met uh, my future wife uh, june and uh, she was uh, visiting st petersburg russia with uh, a mission group she was a leader of the mission groups at that time mm-hmm. and they bring bibles medical supplies uh, in russia and uh, uh, they were stationed at the hospital uh, where that uh, hospital where i was working i've had a Special hotel right there, and that's how we met. And she's the first person who actually, you know, introduced me to Jesus Christ, and I accept Christ in my heart. And uh, that was a very interesting time for me because I went uh, with uh, groups of missionaries in uh, in a city, downtown, and subway systems, and you know, they was giving uh, Russian Bibles everybody. Uh, and the uh, reaction of people was absolutely tremendous. I could not believe that people was, you know, holding this uh, book, and it was just breaking uh, this crying. And I tried to understand what what is going on. It's almost like I don't understand. I never see my people acting this way. Mm-hmm. It was very... Uh, heartbroken kind of a weep practically yes and it it was very amazing and i I said you know i want to understand uh, this god behind that power i want to understand who is this god who can do such uh, things with uh, people and and that's the way kind of you know i came more and more and more close to uh, in my relation with uh, with the lord and we married uh in st petersburg uh june was a flight attendant at delta airlines at that time so she was flying back and forth kind of a
4: mm-hmm. was a
3: difficult time so and um well uh, after i left russia it happened 1993 and we came in Seattle, Washington. That's where we spent first uh, six years of, you know, our life, uh, m- myself in the United States. That's where we lived. And after I came here in Nevada, Las Vegas, to do this uh, domestic preparedness job, on um, behalf of Department of Energy. But yes, uh, this is how practically. My wife uh, bring me salvation, you know, of Christ's salvation to my life. And I remember we had a small dictionary, Russian-English, and I didn't speak uh, English much at that time. And uh, I tried to translate, she tried to translate me, the, the, you know, the gospel of Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always say in this way, you know, the Holy Spirit is the best translator in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. Even I didn't understand many things what she told me at that time. I understood that uh, Christ died for me, for my sins. And uh, that was enough for me to to grasp that uh, news, the great news of salvation.
1: That's a wonderful story. And your book, Inside the Red Zone, is a wonderful book. And I recommend it to readers. Uh, you can get it at your local bookstore. And you have a website, don't you, Igor?
3: Yes, I do. It's uh, one word, uh, Global Strategic Resources, www.globalstrategicresources, and yes, a book available in that uh, website, as well as information, some from appendices. Again, this is on civil defense, and if people like to know more about civil defense or uh, practically what to do if something like this occur in the United States, they can go look at the website as well, or they can purchase a book. Mm. Also on the website, it's available on Barnes & Noble's, and Amazon.com and uh, main, uh, most Christian stores, they can order this book as well.
1: Okay. Well, thank you, Igor, for thank your you witness and your book. And we'll talk to you again in the future. Thank you. Uh, we'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist.
2: Plugging you into life.
0: We are Life Radio 1020 WIBG.
2: Whether it's early in the morning, Henning in the afternoon, Dr. Jim Dobson and focus on the family. South Jersey's fastest growing Christian news talk. Now with more than a million listeners and hits at WIBG 1020. WIBG. 1020 WIBG. Or at WIBG.com. Plugging you into life.
0: And now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist radio show, Jeff Nyquist.
1: It's very interesting. About the time our original 13 states adopted their new constitution in 1787, Alexander Tyler, a Scottish history professor at the University of Edinburgh, had this to say about the fall of Athens some 2,000 years before. It's very interesting. He said, a democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. Here's something else he said. A democracy will continue to exist up until the time that voters discover they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. There's another one. From that moment on, the majority always vote for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that every democracy will finally collapse due to loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by dictatorship. And then uh, one further quote. The average age of the world's great civilizations from the beginning of history has been about 200 years. During those 200 years, those nations always progressed through the following sequence from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence from dependence back into bondage.
0: Just a few days ago Jeff received an email from South Africa telling about white farmers being brutally murdered, not by local blacks, but by special highly trained hit squads from the cities. They killed a white woman the other day by pouring boiling water on her continuously until she was dead. Jan Lamprecht, the writer of this disturbing email, is an author and political commentator. Jan will be Jeff's special guest on next week's program. He will share firsthand some of the shocking events that are happening today in the supposedly liberated country of South Africa. You will learn what Jan Lamprecht means when he ends his email by saying, things are getting really strange over here, Jeff, little by little.
1: Thank you for listening to the show. You can visit my website at jrnyquist.com. Until next time, I am jeff nyquist and this has been the jeff nyquist program
0: from the jeff nyquist studios on california's north coast and from our flagship broadcast facilities at wibg 1020 atlantic city suburban philadelphia's number one news talk station you've been listening to the jeff nyquist radio show we invite you to join us again next week at the same time In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. Thank you for listening.